Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, church. Super excited to jump right into God's Word here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 4 here this morning as we continue our, our series called Abide Together. Uh, the idea of abiding together is really part of our theme for the year where we're trying to learn how to really cling to Christ and, and have the result of His character formed into our lives. And we've been seeing that we must pursue the things that Jesus loves if we're going to abide with Him. And so we're trying to do that. We're trying to find out what are the things that Jesus loves. We, let's pursue those things. And our church has landed on six pursuits uh, that talk about the things that Jesus loved. Last week, we learned about fervent prayer. And today we're going to learn about worship and, and then also uh, biblical preaching. God is, also wants us to pursue Him through purposeful discipleship and through courageous evangelism and strategic church planting. So we are pursuing these things and really trying to call our church together to be pursuing these. Not, not individually, but as a team, as a church, as a family, that we would pursue these things together. And in that, we're going to recognize that God has loved us immensely and called us to love others. And that He has sent us because He loves uh, the lost so much as well. And so we're really trying to describe what kind of church we want to be in this series. And today we're going to look at the issue of passionate worship. When was the time that you learned how to worship? Can, can you recall back and think about the time where you really began to understand what worship was and how to actually engage in it in your life? Have you ever learned that? Maybe a question as well. I fear that many of us can kind of make our way through, through church uh, in a way that doesn't really understand this concept, even though it's something that we do all the time. Uh, maybe another way to help us get, begin to think about this topic is, um, whenever it was that you learned what worship is, what would you describe it to be right now? If somebody were to come up to you and said, I, I know you go to this church thing and you worship, what is exactly worship in your life. Well, today I want to teach us from God's Word, from one of the primary places that Jesus teaches us about worship, and we're going to see this. True worship focuses on God, which requires understanding, and that leads to relationship and results in passionate worship. Really, we want to learn today how to be a true worshiper of God. So let's look again at that passage in John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 26 here this morning and, and see how Jesus taught an individual, uh, a woman, uh, about what worship is. So Jesus is teaching uh, a woman to be a true worshiper. Let's read together uh, this passage. So, so starting in verses 1 to 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had, been give, had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So a couple things that we see here. Jesus, his ministry has, has kind of gone bonkers. It's popular. It's, he's baptizing more people than John the baptizer. And that's caused the attention of the religious leaders. And Jesus, this is very early on in Jesus's ministry, knows that it is not the right time to have the confrontation with the Pharisees that would ultimately lead to his death, burial, and resurrection. So he leaves Judea. This is in the southern part of Israel, down near Jerusalem. And he, to, and he wants to go to Galilee, but to do that, he has to pass through a region called Samaria. And he, and he stops at a town called Sychar. So I put on a map here for us to understand that. And, and on the big map, kind of shaded, you'll see the smaller map. And I put a circle around the city that we're talking about here. And this area of Samaria was actually a very racially divided area from Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. You see, up in the north and in the south, in those two regions, there were Jewish people who saw themselves as pure-blooded Jewish people. Uh, but in the middle, between them, in this area of Samaria, were people that they saw as kind of half-Jewish. What had happened was when Assyria conquered the northern country of Israel, they had removed most of the significant and wealthy Israelites that were there and only left a few of the Israelites and then uh, brought in people from other countries into that particular, particular area. And there was intermarriage and began to kind of mix their religion. And this area was then called uh, something that was less in the mind of Jewish people uh, they, they, were, they were like half-breeds. The, the terrible sin of racism was in full swing in this particular area. And so Jesus has entered here, and he's gone to a particular town that has a lot of history. Jacob had built a well there. He had given this plot of land to his son Joseph. And it, they were very proud about that particular, those particular facts about this. And we see here that he's arrived at about noon. It says here at the sixth hour, the way the Jewish clock works, that would have been about 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. And he's been walking for quite a long time and he comes to a well and he's he sent the disciples into town to get food and he's come to the well uh, to get water. And this is what we see. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So uh, just exploring the story a little bit, we see that there's a, a woman here who has come out to the well in the middle of the day. Normally women would have come in the cool of the morning or in the evening. So it's unusual that she's there at this time. Many people think that it's because she's a bit of a social outcast as we're gonna find out here in a little bit. But Jesus asks her for help to draw water, to give him a drink. And she actually responds to that and says, what are you doing? This isn't the way social things work at this particular time. Rabbis don't ask women, don't interact with women for things like this. And you're Jewish and I'm Samaritan. That's not how this normally plays out and normally works. And uh, in this, Jesus um, begins to say to her, um, if you knew 
who was asking you, you wouldn't be concerned about those things. I, I, I'm actually here to break down some of those barriers that, are, that exist there. And, and actually, I want to show you something incredibly important. He makes this huge statement and, and kind of reverses the role. He, he asks for water from her and then he tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who I am, actually you would be asking me for living water that I have to offer you. Now the woman was a bit, bit curious at this point, And so we continue the story. It says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? And that's a rhetorical question. It's supposed to mean like she doesn't believe that he actually is. He gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and the, and the livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And, and so we see here again, Jesus, um, uh, the woman is thinking about the natural water that's coming out of the well in front of her, physically in front of her. And Jesus says, uh, actually, that's, there's something more important that's going on here. I'm going to actually give you living water and, and this living water actually will become a spring inside of you. So the idea of living water is like, it doesn't stop. It doesn't run out. It continues on. But, but even more than that, we see that Jesus is actually not talking about natural things. He's talking about supernatural things. He's talking about spiritual things when he says living water. And so we see him refer to this living water being welled up into eternal life. There, there's, something, there's an offer that Jesus is giving here that, that is almost incomprehensible about what, how that could actually happen. But the woman knows she needs that and she wants that. And she sees the, the, the great opportunity in front of her. And so she goes on here and says, The woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw the water. She's talking again about natural things. She doesn't quite understand all that's going on. So Jesus said to her to help her explain, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You see, Jesus is trying to move her from the natural things to the supernatural, the spiritual things. And so he interacts with her in a way that only he can. And he, he asks her about her husband, which she is embarrassed to admit all of the seemingly poor, embarrassing history that she has with husbands. And so she says, I, I don't have any. And Jesus points out the fact, yeah, you're right, but that you've had five husbands and now you're sleeping with somebody who isn't even your husband at the moment. And, and so in this, Jesus is showing her that he's actually speaking of something more than just the natural scene, things around her. He's talking in spiritual terms. She recognizes that and says, I, I see that you are a prophet. And she goes on and says this, our fathers worshiped. We're going to talk about spiritual things. We're going to talk about worship. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is the first time that Jesus reveals to anybody in Scripture that He is the Messiah. And He reveals that to a social outcast, a, a sinner, a woman who was a Samaritan. All of those things would be considered lowly in those particular days. And, and in that, Jesus is helping, to, helping us to see that as He reveals Himself, He's revealing Himself to everybody. There's no one too far away for Jesus to reveal Himself to. In all of that, we see that Jesus is actually teaching and the whole interaction, the purpose of it was to help this woman understand how to worship. And so that's what we're trying to learn here today. How to be a true worshiper that God is really seeking, uh, seeking from us. Do you know how to be that kind of worshiper? Well, Jesus actually highlights four things. And I want to show you these four things here today to help you understand how you can be a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ, how we together can do this. These are the things that we should be pursuing together. They come right from Jesus' teaching. I want you to notice that once the word worship comes up, once the woman brings up this idea of worship, in the course of five verses, Jesus, uh, the word worship is mentioned ten times. This is actually one of the most condensed, important, primary places in the Bible that teaches about worship. And so let's give our attention to it here today. I want to show you the four things that I believe that Jesus is trying to help this woman understand and therefore us as well. The first is this. True worship focuses on God. Notice, true worship. In other words, there's not always true worship. And, and, and what we're saying true worship does is it focuses on God Himself. In, in verse 21, uh, we're going to see this in just a second. But I wanted to find worship a little bit for us before we look at that. Let's kind of get an understanding of this topic a little bit further. And I'll start with the description Tim Keller gives to it. He says, worship is pulling our affections off of our idols and putting them onto God. I think that's a really good description. We, we actually see the word worship in English a number of times, translated a number of different ways. In the Old Testament, the idea of uh, worship was to prostrate oneself. That means to lay yourself on the ground, to prostrate oneself on the ground before someone where you bow down and you become humble and you touch the ground. It's the idea of subservience, that somebody is greater than you, and you, you demonstrate that in this physical act of prostrating yourself. In the New Testament, there's actually two really common words. The first is proskuneo. Proskuneo means to kiss towards, uh, to kiss the hand of. And it's this idea of respect, but more than respect, it's adoration. It's that you love the king and, and that you're not just, uh, not just adoration for him, but that you have allegiance to him, that, you're, that you are for him. The other New Testament word, latreo, means to give or pay homage. The idea of homage is when you give special honor and public respect to somebody. And so in that, 
we see that worship in the Bible oftentimes is just very simply described as ascribing worth to someone. We actually see this in, in, in the Psalms. In Psalm 29, verse, one, verse one, and 1 and 2, it helps us to see this. Uh, let me read these verses for us um, here this morning. Psalm 29, 1 and 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This idea of ascribing worth is really the simplest way that we can understand that. Another way we could say this is that worship is the elevation of magnifying someone or something else while demagnifying and de-emphasizing myself. It's kind of what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. That was a statement of worship, of ascribing worth to Jesus. Another person has said it this way. It's not letting anything get in the place of supreme value. That's God's place. So we understand this idea of worship and, and we see this as this bowing down before and ascribing worth to somebody else. I remember seeing uh, an example of this that was actually uh, the right thing, but to the wrong object, the wrong person. When I first uh, came to KL, we went and visited my sister in Bangkok and we were, uh, had a great time with them. And then we were back in the airport, we were coming home. We had just checked in our luggage at the ticket counter and we're walking our way over to where the security gates were. And all of a sudden I felt my daughter tugging on my arm and she, she said, dad, dad, that's not right. And she was pointing over to a group of monks. And those monks, there was one that was apparently higher than the others, that there were three monks on the floor laying their heads down in front of the one who was standing receiving the worship. Now, that, that's the wrong thing that we should worship. We should only worship Jesus Christ. But you see in the act of what they were doing, I mean, I'm not sure when the last time was that we actually physically got on the floor, prostrated ourselves, bowed down, put our head down as a physical symbol of what is going on inside of us. That's what those monks were doing in the wrong way to the wrong person, but worshiping, demonstrating worship and what they were doing. So that's what worship is, but there's an opposite to worship that we have actually recently talked about in the series about the heart, and, and we need to understand a little bit further. Just simply this way, the opposite of worship, what do you think it is? It's idolatry. Idolatry is the, uh, not pride, is the root of all sin. So, so idolatry is when we place anything or anyone on the throne that is God's alone. So it's God's throne. He deserves to be there, but we place other things there. We worship other things. We worship wrong things like these monks who are worshiping a higher level of monk that was there. That, that was idolatry that was going on. And Jesus is confronting here a woman who didn't understand proper worship and was actually an idolater, somebody who was worshiping something that was other than God. So we see here, if we look back in the text, that the woman here is uncomfortable about how Jesus is showing that he is talking about supernatural things in living water because he prophetically speaks about her life. And she realizes, we got to get off this topic. I'm embarrassed about that. And so she brings up this idea, hey, you're a prophet. Prophets, hey, it's a spiritual thing. Well, let's talk about worship. And, and, and she says here, 
uh, in John 4, verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it is in Jerusalem that is the place where people ought to worship. What we see here is that she appeals to her history to defend the location where she is worshiping and notes that there is a difference between Jewish people and the Samaritans about how worship is supposed to happen. She says that there's this difference in location. And so, again, let me throw the map up here for you. And what you're going to see is she says, we worship on this mountain. It was Mount Gerizim, which is, notice the little triangle that's kind of circled there near Sikar, the town that they were in. And... And she says, she's pointing right up at the mountain. She says, that's where we worship. That's where our forefathers worshiped. That's where our religion worships. But you say it should be in Jerusalem. It's in a different place. And there's this big debate. And I think that it's right here. And uh, how dare you tell me that, it's, that, that I have to worship somewhere else? And Jesus here helps her understand that it's not about location. She she. As she says, hey, us Samaritans were different. We, we only believe in the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament. And you Jewish people, uh, you learned about the other things, about David and how he had set up a house of worship in Jerusalem. We don't believe that. And, and we have a disagreement about that. And, and so worship, yes, but we worship over here. You don't worship, we don't worship the way you do. And Jesus says to her, it's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship. That's actually what matters. And so she, he says in verse 21, he said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, when John, when we see in the, in, the, in the Gospels, when we talk about the hour, it's talking about Jesus and the specific time that he's going to be on the cross paying for our sins so that we could have a relationship by faith through him. And Jesus is saying, the hour is soon here. And in a, in a little bit, he actually says, actually, it is already here that I'm going to be doing these things. And, and, and what you're seeing here is it's not going to be a debate about where to worship. It's actually about who to worship. And the who of worship must be God. The focus must be on him. Now, she had the issue of geographic location we don't usually talk too much about that. We oftentimes struggle with other forms of idolatry that take our focus off of God. And so I want to, talk, I want to look here today about five things that we worship. It's, it's idolatry that we worship other than God. This is actually pretty common. So I'm going to do a countdown. We'll start at the number five answer. The number five answer is that we worship family or children. This is when we elevate family and children to the place of God. Like They're the thing that matter most. And they, we spend the most time thinking about them and acting for them. Actually, we would say, if God took one of these things away from me, I wouldn't believe him anymore. When family is in the place of God, it's idolatry. And when that happens, we put our family at risk. God was willing to remove whatever is on the throne that he, he is supposed to be on in our hearts, including even family. The number four idolatry problem we often have is possessions. Now, it's not wrong to have things, but it's wrong when those things have us. And so if you're constantly concentrating on your possessions and on your paycheck and on your savings account, if that matters so much to you that, that you, uh, you sacrifice everything else in life, including worshiping God, if you hold back from God those things, it's an idol. 
If you care more about those things, they're idols. The number three thing is, is a per, it could be a person. It, when one person directs everything that I do, they become an idol in my life. We often see this when we talk about celebrities and how some people can get so enamored with celebrities that they try to be exactly like them. They try to look like them, talk like them. They know everything about them. But it's not so much about that. That's only a few people. It's many other times when we allow people in our life to really have full control or much more control over our lives than God. Here's the number two idol that we often have. It's our career and our job. And this is oftentimes when the career and job is the thing that gives us a sense of security and significance and identity. And we know it's become an idol when we lose our job and we're completely crushed by that. And we think that we're worthless as a result of that. Or maybe we don't lose it, but we have some sort of failure in it. It's not going the way that we want it to. And we're so driven to accomplish it that we actually lose our love for God. But the number one thing that is oftentimes in the place of God is, the, is, the, is, I, is myself. Idol number one is always myself. It, it, it manifests itself in that it's what I want and it's what makes me happy and it's always about me and, and I'm in, I want control and, and it's always about my comfort and I won't sacrifice for God in any way. Actually, I demand lots of things from Him. I'll even spiritualize and use Him in those ways, but really it's about Him. And in that, I would just say, Church family, we must repent. We have to repent of any idol that is stealing your worship to God. Is the focus of your worship in the correct place is really what, what should we are asking here. Is, do you, are you a true worshiper who has their focus on God or have you allowed some other thing to take the place of where God, to ascribe worth to it more than others? I realize that sometimes... It's not actually a physical idol that's in front of us, but it's the functional idols. It's the thing that while we may not have a carved image of it, it dominates our life the way only God should. And if that's the case, we need to repent. We need to recognize our wrong and recognize that we don't have the power to save ourselves even from this thing. And God, will you change my affections because I want to worship you? That's the repenting that may need to be happening as you recognize an idol that may be in your life so that you lose focus on God and really can't be a true worshiper. We're learning how to be a true worshiper, that God, the kind that God is seeking. And the second thing that we notice here is that when we focus on God, it requires that then we understand God. We see this in how Jesus corrects the woman and therefore many times correcting us as we oftentimes play the role of the woman in, real, in our real lives as well. And it's in what he says in verse 22. Notice Jesus says to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, that last phrase is a little bit confusing about uh, kind of the racial element of the, of the Jews and the way that that's stated. I'll clarify that in just a second. Notice what he says first, though. You worship what you do not know. Jesus is lovingly pointing out to her that you're worshiping, you're, you're sincere about your worship, but you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping what, in a way that the object that you don't really know, know in that. In this, we see that worship is not the sum total of our imaginations. It's not the thing that we create to worship. Uh, it's not, 
God as I conceive him, that's actually idolatry. We worship, Jesus says, instead what we do know. He, Jesus here affirms the woman's interest in worship, but he points her to a deeper and correct understanding about who it is that we should be worshiping. And if you know anything about Jesus, you realize he has the authority to do this. And in that, he's saying to the woman, truth, when you understand the truth, that's what fuels worship. Listen, if we have a worship problem, if we're not worshiping the way we should, we need to get our eyes on truth. We need to realize we're worshiping what we don't know. We need to know what it is that we worship. We need a correct understanding of that. So one of the great preachers of old, Jonathan Edwards, uh, said it this way. He said, I should, think of, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections or the emotions of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth. You see, as a pastor, he realized that if we get people excited and worshiping about something that's not based in the truth, that's a problem. You're worshiping what you don't know. And Jesus here is saying you could be sincere about that worship, but if it's not the right worship, if it's a false object that you're worshiping, if it's an idol or another religion, that worship is actually not true worship. He then says, for salvation comes from the Jews. Now, clarity here. He's not saying that Jews give salvation to the Gentiles. What he is saying is that Jew, Jew, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were entrusted with the stewardship of teaching all the others in the world about how to worship God. So when, it's, when we say worship is from the Jews, we, we come to understand it was their responsibility, their stewardship to teach about who God is and how to worship Him. Additionally, we see it was that through them, the one we are to worship was to come in human and bodily form. Jesus was born to Jewish parents. In that, we see that the overall lesson about worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth is that the worship of God is not to be confined to a single geographic location or necessarily regulated by the temporary provisions of the Old Testament law. With the coming of Christ, the separation between Jew and Gentile was no longer relevant, nor was the centrality of the temple in worship. With the coming of Christ, all of God's children gained equal access to God through Him. Worship became a matter of the heart, not external actions, and directed by truth rather than ceremony. So worship requires that we know what it is that we're worshiping or who it is that we're worshiping. And so let me review for you five essential truths about Jesus Christ that we must know if we are to be true worshipers. So we say this in our doctrinal statement. This is what our church teaches consistently. This is something we need to know and celebrate and, and have clarity around. The first is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a couple verses later, in 14, verse 14, he says, and, and, the, and, and the Lord put on flesh, and He dwelled among us, that He's fully God and fully man. We, the second thing you need to know is that Jesus died as our substitute. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it tells us that He who knew no sin became sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Three, Jesus rose bodily from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 tells us that according to the prophets, the thing of first importance, according to the prophets, was that Jesus, he lived, and then that he died, was buried, and again, according to the prophets, came to life. We, we see here that, that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That is the testimony of, of hundreds of people in the word of God, thousands of people in history who were demonstrated that he rose bodily from the grave. We believe that. Then number four, we believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Okay, so if he rose, where is he? Well, we know he ascended into heaven and Hebrews chapter eight, verse one tells us that he is now sitting at the right hand of God waiting to return. That's the last thing. Jesus will return to earth in power and glory. John 14, three tells us that he goes to prepare a place for us and that he's coming back for us and he's going to take us there. So Jesus, there's five essential core things that we need to know about Jesus. And my question here today is, have you believed in these truths about him? You see, as we, as we understand, as we focus on God and we need to come to a place of understanding about how to have a relationship with God and it requires that we know these things, that we believe these things about Jesus. So just for application, the, the second step of the gospel dance, we've already done the first, we've repented. Now the second step is to believe something. We need with eyes of faith to look and believe that salvation is through Jesus. Let me ask you, is your understanding of who worship belongs to correct? Do you believe these things about Jesus? And do you, does that understanding help you begin to see how wonderful it is to have not only the relationship, but to have the activity of ascribing worth and showing that he is supreme in all of our lives, to bow down, to kiss the hand in allegiance and adoration because of that? See, that's what we are to believe. And if you don't believe that today, Jesus invites you by faith today to begin to believe those things. This is the ABCs of the Christian faith. A is to acknowledge that you are a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, you don't have to be embarrassed about that. Every single person has sinned. That's a terrible thing, but you're not alone in that. And you can admit to Jesus, you can acknowledge, I'm a sinner. That's the first step of saving faith. The second step is to believe. Believe Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. When you believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin, you get this incredible gift. It's the gift that Jesus is talking to the woman about in verse 10 there. And then if you, but you can't just see that the gift is available. You actually have to take hold of it. And the way you do that is see, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth, then you are saved. That's the moment of conversion. Have you believed the right things about Jesus so you can worship God? So you can be a true worshiper of God? Have you acknowledged your sin and believed in Jesus to pay the penalty for you and confessed to Jesus that he is your Lord and Savior? You put your full trust and belief in him. You'll follow him obediently all your days. Listen, if you've never done that, today is the day. The Lord is calling you even in the explanation of how to be a passionate worshiper, how to be a true worshiper, to fulfill the longing that's within you. He's telling you, this is what you believe. This is how that happens.
So we're trying to learn how to be a true worshiper that God is really calling to himself. And we've seen here that we need to focus on Christ and that that focus brings understanding about Jesus and our access to him. That understanding, number three, then leads to relationship. John chapter 4, verse 20, 23 helps us to see this here. He says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. We see true worshipers are what the Father is seeking and searching after. And, and in that, by saying that there's true worshipers, He's indicating that not everybody is, that there's actually false worshipers as well. And unfortunately, not everybody is a true worshiper. There's people who are like this woman in the story where they're just ignorant of what it really means. They don't understand. Their focus hasn't been properly on God, as I've been teaching here. And we're trying to help understanding come so that those who haven't understood can be true worshipers, can be passionate worshipers. We see that there's also, secondly, there's hypocritical worshipers, like the older son in the parable, of, um, in, the parable in Luke chapter 15. Uh, we often call it the prodigal son. Uh, but what we find is the older son is just as far from the father as the younger son who goes in and, and spends everything uh, in his way. Uh, he was hypocritical because at the end we see here that he was, he was not wanting a relationship with the father. He just wanted the father for the stuff he could get. It was hypocritical. Third, there's external worshipers, like the people in Joel chapter 2. I'm going to read this for us. God says this, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Listen, what we see here is that there are some who are external worshipers. All they do is they rip their clothes on the outside and make it look like they're a worshiper, but their hearts are not really after God. And he says, I don't want that kind of worship. I don't want just external worship. I want internal. Some people are selfish worshipers. And this is what happens in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. We see uh, that what, what is happening here is some very selfish worshipers. Uh, they say, uh, God says to them, you've, you've messed up in your worship. You've polluted your worship. And they say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you're off, and he says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor and he won't accept you or show you favor. What, he, what they were doing was they were taking their animals to sacrifice, but they weren't taking the best. They were taking the injured the one that was going to die anyway. The one that was worthless was the one that they were offering in worship. You see, it was selfish worship. I want to act like I'm worshiping, but I'm not giving my best. I want to keep some of that. I'm selfish. I want to keep that for myself. And then there's apathetic worship. In the book of Isaiah, we see what this looks like. In Isaiah 29, 13, it says, The Lord says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and the fear of me and his commandment is taught by men. He goes on to talk about how he doesn't accept that. He says, that, listen, th these are apathetic worshipers. They, they go through the motions of it, but they're not really, their hearts are not really engaged in that. What we see in these wrong kinds of worship are, are something that's in common in all of them. 
and that is that they are not interested in a relationship with God. That, that is a key marker of, of worship that is wrong, that is out of sorts. When there isn't a relationship, but you just go through the motions of it, that, that does not actually represent true relationship. That does not get you far. So it's kind of like a husband who would go to his wife and say, I mean, think about how terrible all of this. Hey, honey, it's 1030 on Sunday morning. It's time for me to tell you that I love you again. I love you. There, I said it. She wouldn't accept that. She shouldn't accept that. That, That's not actually a relationship. And yet, how oftentimes is it that we would actually worship God maybe with that kind of attitude, where it's just this duty, this outward thing, this hypocritical or selfish thing that we go about. Listen, God is looking for true worshipers, not false worshipers. And true worship requires a relationship. The Father is seeking. This is, this is great news. This is good news. The Father is seeking this kind of thing. So listen, if you want a genuine, authentic, true relationship with God, God is pursuing you and he's trying to bring you into that relationship. That's why he says back in John chapter 4, the hour is coming and is now here. And is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father. Jesus is saying that the time to worship God through relationship with me is here. I am the one that is the bridge into that relationship. You no longer have a broken relationship because of your sin. When you believe and trust in me, you can have that relationship with God. And that's why I think it's so significant that we hear the first part of the story, what Jesus is already doing. He has this plan far in advance. He knew he was going to be talking to this woman. And so when Jesus asked for a drink and she says, who are you? Why would you want to do that? That's socially not acceptable. And he answers her, if you knew the gift of God, that's the eternal life that he's talking about, and who it is that is saying, give me a drink, Jesus the true Messiah, if you really knew that, you would hear me ask for a drink and you, would, you wouldn't even give me a drink. You would turn around and you would ask me for the living water. You would ask me for the gift of those things because you would know the sweetness of the relationship and the incredible reward that comes as a result of that. Listen, there's great power in worship. There's great power in worship in a number of ways. First of all, Worship brings God himself to us. Let let me show you just one example. There's many in scripture. One example very clearly of how that happened. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see that Solomon has just finished in the previous chapter worshiping God as he dedicated the building of the temple to him. And as he comes to the end and and he finishes his speech and his prayer before all the nation there, it tells us how God's response. He says in chapter 7, verse 1, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. They worshiped their faces to the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Listen, worship brings God himself into the equation. And it's a consuming, all-consuming fire that he changes all sorts of things when his presence is there. 
Second thing we see is that worship brings salvation. We see this in a chapter dedicated to, wor- to, to worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's talking about the order of worship. And at the very, uh, towards the middle of it here, he, he says this, 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, if all were worshiping and we were talking about the Lord and we were telling about all that he did, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called into account by all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Worship brings salvation. When we are worshiping and others around see us worshiping, it opens them to the understanding of God that causes them to give their life to the Lord so that they can be worshipers of Him as well. And then finally, worship brings victory. Back again in Second Chronicles, we see an actual uh, amazing, miraculous uh, uh, time when the king, Jehoshaphat, is surrounded by enemies. And it's an enemy that's larger than them, that should defeat them, that should call them. And, and, and the Lord says, here's the strategy. As you gather everybody together, get the whole nation together. And, and, but instead of using the military and military might, we're going to worship. People are like, what? We're going to fight a battle, like a physical battle by worship? What? That? Listen, the faith they must have had to be able to follow this through, right? So it says that they rose early in the morning when the, uh, the king had taken counsel with people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And does that seem like a good military plan to you? Probably not, right? But notice what happens. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and so that they were routed. Listen, as they were actually worshiping here as a military strategy, it should have caused them to lose. In fact, what God did was he brought them victory. Worship brings victory. And listen, while that was a unique time in history where God told that people to do that, that's not what he's saying to us even here today, but the principle still applies. And we can see this in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3. Listen, God has victory in your life when you give him all of your life, when you worship him, when you realize who it is that you are and you put off the old things and you put on the new things and you gather around with people and the word of God and you sing songs, hymns and spiritual songs and you worship him together. He transforms your life. There's victory of him in your life overpowering that which is evil. So for us here today, did you know that your deepest longings are completely satisfied by your relationship with your Creator? That's what we're seeing here today. In application, really what I'm saying is we need to live in relationship with God. So do you have an active relationship with God? Is it a real relationship with God? Not just one-sided where He does everything for you, but where you are, there's a back and forth of the relationship with you. That comes, by the way, from a right understanding of Jesus Christ because your focus is on God. You've repented of focusing on other things. You're seeking to understand Jesus Christ. That's how we actively pursue a relationship with Him. And then we are living, we're fighting. This is part of the gospel dance, right? We repent, we believe something, and then we live something out. We live out the abiding in Christ that God has called us to. I mean, this has been our theme chapter for this particular year. year. Look, look at what it says in, in John 15, verse 4. We've read this many times. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Listen, if you don't have that relationship and you are apart from God right now, the way that you become a true worshiper, a passionate worshiper, is that you get into relationship with Him. You do just three simple things. First, just start right now. Ask Him for the relationship. If there's a broken relationship with you, ask Him to fix the relationship. If there's a blockage in the relationship with Him, ask Him to remove it. Secondly, that, that's talking to Him, right? You're asking Him. You need to listen to Him. A relationship has talking and listening. And you listen to him by reading the word. He, listen, he's revealed everything about himself in this word, in the scriptures. So you got to ask and then you got to listen and then get into community. Get into relationship with other people who are in relationship with God. That's why we do Harvest KL at Home, where you can sit shoulder to shoulder with people and have a discussion about what you're learning together and the struggles that you're having with life. Even more so, that's why we have small groups. Small groups are getting started. I just want to shamelessly plug them right here for us. And on Wednesday, the 19th of August, we begin the process and just encourage you, if you're not in a small group of believers, like that's an essential part of having a relationship with God, that as you work with other believers and they help you along in your walk with Him, that's what He's provided to encourage that relationship in you. So we're learning how to be a true worshiper, the kind that God is seeking. And we've seen three things. There's one last thing I want you to see here this morning. Relationship results in passionate worship. We see this in this verse 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So in this, we can see that it's possible to worship in an incomplete manner. It's possible you could just worship in truth or just worship in spirit. And Jesus is telling us that we need both of those things to be complete in that. And that's really what passionate worship is. It's spirit and truth worship. It's those things together. So if you only worship truth, that's a problem because worship can't just be a head thing. It can't just be a shoulders up worship because we have to engage our feelings into this. I mean, this was the kind of truth that many of us grew up around where it was just very much uh, heady, but very little like response into it. For me, the game changer came when I realized that God was listening to my worship. And I realized that I can't just sing about God. I need to be singing to him because it's a relationship. God wants, to, wants you to maximize who that you've been in relationship. And so how we express that is all different. We do that in different ways, but, but we have to realize it can't just be with our heads. It has to be with all of us. Likewise, we can't only have spirit worship. The reason that we're told that we must worship in spirit and truth is because God is spirit. So if we want to be connected with him, we must use the spirit that we have. Really, when he's talking about the spirit, he's talking about the totality of that in us. And Mo Moses told us about this in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6. He told us how we are to love God. He, he, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
What, what he's saying here is that our worship is directed by how we love God through the totality of our person. So as we love God, it's really worship that is happening. Now, when he says that we must love our, the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and might, actually the, might, the word might means like the totality of who you are. And so Jesus in Mark chapter 12, 30, when he said it, he said that you will love with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're saying the same thing, the totality of what it is that we're supposed to believe. So a commentator has said it this way. True worship must be in spirit, that is engaging the whole heart. Unless there is a real passion for God, there is no worship in spirit. At the same time, worship must be in truth, that is properly informed. Unless we have knowledge of the God we worship, there is no worship in truth. Both are necessary for God-honoring worship. Spirit without truth leads to a shallow, overly emotional experience that could be compared to a high. As soon as the emotion is over, when the fervor cools, the worship ends. Truth without spirit can result in a dry, passionless encounter that can easily lead to a form of joyless legalism. The best combination of both aspects of worship results in a joyous appreciation of God informed by Scripture. The more we know about God, the more we appreciate Him. The more we appreciate, the deeper our worship. And the deeper our worship, the more God is glorified. So we are to worship in spirit and truth. That means all of us. Because when we worship in just spirit, that, that seems fake. We haven't really engaged our minds in that. When we worship just in truth, it's oftentimes hypocritical because we don't actually feel it. We're not actually believing in all of that. And so really the charge here is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, passionate worship overflows from me when I focus on God and understand what he has given, this eternal living water gift that comes from Jesus and that as he seeks this relationship from me. So we have to love the Lord. Love the Lord. How do we do that? How do we love the Lord in the totality of our life in this way? Well, first, we love the Lord with our emotions. I need to express my love for God. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to look the same in that, because all of us have different kinds of emotions and different ways of expressing them outwardly. But what God is saying is, listen, to the max, redline who you are in your worship of Him. Express yourself to the Lord. Number two, we need to worship with our soul, with our heart. This is the inner person, the inner man. We just did the whole series about the heart and how we need to have our desires towards him and that God is the one that does that when we ask him. And then with thirdly, we need to worship with my mind. I need to think about God. I need to have my mind engaged, not just in my emotions. My mind should be guiding me because it's spirit and truth. Truth needs to be involved in this whole process. And so I need to allow God's thoughts to shape my thinking. What that happens when I rightly understand who God is, which we talked about earlier. And in, in that then, we, we come to think great thoughts about God, to study his word, to grow in his discernment. A.W. Tozer, a great pastor, said this, What you think about God is the most important thing about you. So we have to worship with our mind. And then lastly, we need to worship with our strength, with our bodies. That's what it's talking about in tangible ways. 
And so we do that in a number of different ways. We need to lift our voice. Scripture oftentimes talks about that, shouting aloud and and making much of him through voice. We need to use our eyes. Sometimes we close our eyes. Sometimes we look with eyes of faith to what God is doing. Many Psalms talk about using our hands and many times in the form of clapping them or raising them or using them for instruments, we are to use our hands to worship God. And then lastly, we are to use our legs. Many times it tells us to bow or to kneel and that's something with our legs, but we can use them to, sometimes it says to dance to the Lord and to, we can stomp our feet and we can, listen, we should be physically engaged in those moments of worship if it's the totality of who we are. In all of this, we see Jesus teach a woman how to be a true worshiper. And he's teaching us as it's recorded in Scripture. See, true worship focuses on God, which requires an understanding of him and really the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that leads to a relationship with him and results in passionate worship. Listen, we don't have to conjure up spirit and truth worship. We need to get our eyes on the Lord, focus on him, understand who Jesus is, get in actively into the relationship with him in those ways. And listen, passionate worship overflows. It's not conjured. It's not made up. It's not manufactured. It's not faked when we go about pursuing passionate worshipers as true worshipers. True worshipers focus on God. And focusing on God requires some understanding, sometimes even a confrontation like he did with this woman where we have to change some thinking. But that understanding leads to relationship and that relationship results in an overflowing, passionate worship for the Lord. Harvest KL, we want to be passionate worshipers. We want to be worshipers in this way. And I invite you to grow, listen, to repent of false idols, to believe in Jesus Christ to live out a relationship with him and to love him in worship in these ways. Let's pray and ask him to help us with that. Dear Heavenly Father, you are great and worthy of honor and praise. And Lord, we are in awe of your glory, even as we stand here in need of your grace. Lord, we need your grace because we fall short when it comes to the worship of you in this way. But Lord, would you help us to get our eyes on you? Would you help us to see, to focus on who you are, to to understand what you've taught about yourself? Lord, would you draw us into relationship with you? We're asking for that. And we want to do the work of living with you in these ways and loving you as an act of worship. Lord, would you give us the strength? Would you speak into our lives. Would you draw us into this great relationship with you that results in passionate worship? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.